We're gonna be continuing this series. I've been really enjoying this series. Have you guys been enjoying it? Yes. I think it's been really helpful for us. Um, me personally, I think also for the church in general, it's been really, really profound. So we're continuing uh, talking about this series on wisdom. And uh, if you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter seven. I'm just gonna talk a little bit about what we'll be talking about today, which is judgment. And this is one of the words that's in Proverbs 1-3, judgment. It's a pretty broad term. Um, you know, in today's society, being judgmental or the idea of judgmentalism is a hot topic. Right? If you, if you pretty much across the board, if you try to judge somebody, you'll get met with resistance. Um, they'll say something, they might say something like, I can do whatever I want. Or only God can judge me, which um, I always think that's like tattoos. You know, I've seen people with tattoos that have only God can judge me. I always think that's funny, and I'm going to judge those people right now. But um, <laughs> because I think about it and I say, that's true, but do you really want that? Right? So, <laughs> anyway, so I'm off to a hot start judging these people. Um, but anyway, in today's society, we live in a, we live in a climate where there's just, it's, our, our judgments about people are suppressed. Um, they're indirect. You know, social media has, has, has created a world where we would say things about people that we would never say face-to-face, right? And so it can be a little bit difficult to actually evaluate whether or not we have judgments about people um, just because you might not be saying them out loud, for example. That doesn't mean that it has, doesn't have a terrible effect on the progress of the church and the gospel going forth. Um, each of us plays a part in the work of the church. So if you have these internal judgments about people, whether it's people in the church or outside of the church, it has a negative effect on the movement of the gospel. And this is something that we really have to cut out of our culture um, it's a disease, really. It's something that spreads um, through relationships. It spreads through our culture. It th- spreads through families. Um, so I hope this morning that we can look inward and we can lay everything on the table and say, God, change my heart. Um, I hope that today we won't be defensive or quick to deny our own faults but that we, and that we wouldn't brush this topic off as being accessory to the gospel. And I think we'll find out today that it's, it's deeply intertwined with the root of the gospel. It's not a minor piece of our faith. So continuing this to develop this definition of judgment, because I think it's important that we really hone it in because it's a really broad term. Um, I want to be very clear about this. Uh, last week, you know, Alex talked about relationships um, and how they're a central part of our faith. Um, we all know, does everybody know that there are, there's such a thing as bad relationships? Yes. We all agree, bad relationships. Like you might have... Uh, you might have a bad relationship with the IRS. <laughs> I wouldn't know. Uh, you might have a bad relationship with the gym. Love-hate relationship, maybe, you know what I mean? Or maybe, maybe you call that a, you'd call it a good relationship, <laughs> depending on how you live your life. I am not the judge of that, but that's not the, those aren't the kind of relationships that we're talking about, but we know that bad relationships exist but that doesn't mean that we avoid relationships altogether, right? Right, right? We work to correct them. We work to reform those relationships. And the same thing is true with our judgment. We should pursue 
good judgment, good discernment, good decision-making. But what we're talking about today is our tendency toward unbiblical judgment of other people. And this is, again, I'm, I'm, I keep saying this. It's a nuanced topic. This is a really broad definition. I'm trying to narrow this down to be very specific about this. You might ask yourself the question, is there a difference between judging someone and simply observing the fact that they did something and then determining whether or not it's right or wrong? Of course, there's a difference between that. If you look at a court of law, what does a judge do? He or she presides over the hearing. They maintain civility, order, and process. And ultimately, if the defendant is found guilty by the jury, the judge determines the sentencing or punishment. The jury does not actually decide this. In fact, it's common for the judge to implore the jury to not consider punishment when determining guilt. So not only is the jury not supposed to be concerned with punishment, they don't have the power to decide punishment altogether. It's completely out of their hands. See where I'm going here? I think this is a helpful depiction of how the church should act concerning other people and in our relationships. It's not wrong to have discernment about whether or not what someone did is wrong or right. The Holy Spirit convicts us and informs us of these truths every day. This is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is evil. We need that, right? But when we start to play judge, we have to be careful. We are out of line because we are powerless to accurately and appropriately judge other people. We are not able to judge the inner heart of man. And we don't have the power to decide where someone spends eternity. That could be the end of the message. It's a waste of time, right? We don't have any business judging other people. And Jesus was very clear about this. In Matthew 7, where you guys are open, verse 1 and 2. Do not judge. Okay. Or you too will be judged. Pretty straightforward. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If you're at all confused about why it's not okay to judge others, I want to give you some classic examples of what typically happens when humans try to be a judge, uh, an eternal judge, or I guess you could say, of other people. And you can also use these um, as signs that you might be playing the judge of someone else's life. So number one, do you pretend to know why they are the way they are or why they did what they did? That's prideful. Has your relationship with them deteriorated because of choices that you have made? That's unloving. Have you given up hope that there's any possibility of change in their life? That minimizes God's power and is forgetful of your own change. Is it somewhat satisfying to talk about their issues with other people? That's gossip. Or do you look for affirmation from other people about your judgments? That's insecure. So Jesus says, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Would anyone here 
like to be judged with a prideful, unloving, humanist, godless, forgetful, gossiping, and insecure measure? Of course not. Nobody, nobody wants that. But that's what we do when we try to judge other people. So let's stop doing it. Let's turn to James chapter 2. We'll start at verse 12. So we know what happens when we try to judge other people. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to judge. Like what Proverbs uh, 1, chapter, th- uh, chapter 1, 3 says, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. It's not that there's no judgment in our lives, right? Like I said, we're pursuing good judgment. So James chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's no clause here, right? It's not like if. It's not judge with mercy as long as you agree with them. As long as you agree with them politically, as long as you're ethnically similar to them, as long as you're religiously similar to them. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There is no clause. Mercy is always better than judgment. I love this too because it says, To be judged by the law that gives freedom. This is in verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. James is referring to the gospel as a law. Listen to this. The gospel has all the requisites of a law. Precepts with rewards and punishments annexed. It prescribes duty as well as a minister's comfort. And Christ is a king to rule us, as well as a prophet to teach us. And a priest to sacrifice and intercede for us. We are under the law to Christ. It is a law of liberty, and one that we have no reason to complain of as a yoke or burden. For the service of God, according to the gospel, is perfect freedom. It sets us at liberty from all slavish regards, either to the persons or the things of this world. We must all be judged by this law of liberty. Man's eternal condition will be determined according to the gospel. This is the book that will be opened when we stand before judgment day. Not the book of your judgment. Not the book of your feelings or your values. The gospel judges. The truth of the gospel judges. I want to tell you about someone that you probably all know. Have you guys heard of Tim Tebow? Does everybody know who Tim Tebow is? Tebow is a very well-known uh, football player. As a child, he was homeschooled by his Christian parents. He spent his summers in the Philippines helping his father's orphanage and missionary work. In college, he played for the Florida Gators, and he won the, tr- the Heisman Trophy, which is the uh, award for the best college football player. <clears throat> which is very impressive. And he also won two national championships. Um, he's one of a select group of people that won the Heisman the same year that they won a national championship. Uh, during his college football career, he frequently wore references to Bible verses on his eye black. 
which is, if I said eye black to somebody and they're like, what? Does everybody know what eye black? It's like the little tape that they wear underneath their eye, like an athlete. Did you ever see like the tape that they wear under their eye? So he would write John 3.16 on both sides and sometimes like a cross on each one. And he wore it during like one of their most notable championship games. So he's been very outspoken about his faith. He's also been outspoken about his pro-life stance and his commitment to abstinence from sex before marriage. He's a member of the uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, an organization that insists that leaders sign a statement of sexual purity, stating that sex outside of marriage is unacceptable to God. He's preached the gospel in churches, prisons, schools, youth groups, and a welter of evangelical conferences. And he's known by many to be clean-cut, polite, gentle, and respectful. He's also known, here, I'm going to do this. He's known for his signature move, dropping to one knee on the field with his head bowed in prayer and his arm resting on his knee. And it's known as T-bowing. Which, by the way, if you haven't tried it yet, I mean, I already feel so much more thoughtful and focused. It just, you should really try it sometime. It's really great. I'm gonna tell you also about someone else. A little boy who was born to a 19-year-old single white woman. His black father had left the picture before he was born. His mother was destitute and gave him up for adoption. He ended up being raised by a white couple from Milwaukee, and he grew up to be a great football player starting all four years of his eligibility. And then in the 2011 NFL draft, he was drafted as the 45th overall pick. His body is covered with Christian tattoos, including depictions of scrolls, a cross, praying hands, angels defeating demons, terms like to God be the glory, heaven sent, God will guide me, Psalm 1839, Psalm 27.3, it's all over the place, it's covered. He has said, my faith is the basis from where my game comes from. I've been very blessed to have the talent to play the game that I do and be successful at it. I thank God. I think God guides me through every day and helps me take the right steps and has helped me to get to where I am. When I step on the field, I always say a prayer. I say I'm thankful to be able to wake up that morning, go out there and try to glorify the Lord with what I do on the field. I think if you go out and try to do that, no matter what you do on the field, you can be happy about what you did. And his faith is not just about making him feel happy. It's turned him into an activist. His faith has turned into action. During one off-season, he launched a GoFundMe page to fly food and water into suffering Somalia. It surpassed its $2 million goal in just four days. $2 million in four days. And he already pledged to donate $1 million of his own money along with the proceeds of his jersey sales, specifically to organizations that are doing work in oppressed minority communities. This man is also known for his signature move, getting on one knee with his arm rested on his knee, his head probably bowed in prayer, but he did it during the national anthem. His name's Colin Kaepernick. I hope you can see that these two people are not really that different. They're both motivated by their faith to do something. Yet, shortly after Colin Kaepernick was noticed performing 
this protest, half of the nation was absolutely enraged. We were furious that someone would disrespect our flag, our symbol of freedom. And meanwhile, he started receiving death threats and he was shunned from his work. And yes, he had plenty of support from those who agree with him. But my main point here is not about whether he was right or if you should support his protests ideologically. The question is, how should the church respond to Colin Kaepernick as a person, as a human being? We, the church, we are the God's expression of his wisdom, Ephesians 3.10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. It's our responsibility. We are the messengers of God's wisdom. But we either sat idly by or some of us jumped right into the fight. I was one of them. I'll admit that. I valued politics over my faith. I did. And we judged him with our eyes. We judged him with our preferences. We judged him to a standard of patriotism that we desire of all Americans. We judged him with political ideology. We did not judge him with mercy. We didn't judge him with the gospel like we're supposed to. And in that whole process, we missed his message. He was crying out for the nation to help those who are disproportionately affected by poverty and violence, criminal injustice and police brutality. And we were more concerned that he disrespected the national anthem. So I know I said my main point here is not about whether he was right or if he should support the protest ideologically, but in all reality, he's not wrong. And his message should have been given way more credence than we gave it, especially by the church fighting for justice and against injustice is deeply, deeply intertwined with the gospel. They are inseparable. If you spend any time in ministry, you know that respect, service, honor, and gratitude, love, these are all tangible things. They're not just ideas. They're not just feelings. If you want to show someone respect, you have to do something for them. If you want to, someone to know that you love them, You have to show it. You can't just say it. And so what I'm saying here today is we can't just speak the gospel. We can't just speak it in church. We have to enact it for the people. Amen? Amen. Amen. We have to show them. So I hope you can see two things here about Colin Kaepernick. One, from what we can tell, he's a brother. He's a Christian who we should support. Two, his cause was just. But if you're here today, and maybe you're, neither of those things settle with you, maybe you're skeptical of whether or not he was a Christian or is a Christian, maybe you can't reconcile your political differences. Here lies the real point. There's literally nothing that anyone could ever do that would make them unworthy of having the gospel enacted to them. Regardless if someone is not a Christian, they remain our mission. And what am I gonna take to them? If I had one thing, what am I gonna take to them? My terrible attempt at judging them, at judging their sin, or 
Should I be Christ to them? Give them a listening ear. Ask, how can I help you? Fulfill a need of theirs. Ask, how can I pray for you? The lost people of the world don't need our judgments. They need the gospel. Okay, but what about, what about our enemies, right? What about the people that they're hurling insults at us because, because we believe in the gospel? What about the people that are trying to take away our rights? Listen to this. Jesus experienced the worst punishment ever. He was ridiculed and mocked, spit on, whipped and beaten, stabbed and hung on a tree. And he was completely innocent. And it could not be clearer. He was right. And his accusers were wrong. But he wasn't indifferent about them. He didn't just say, no comment. And he definitely didn't judge them in that moment. Because what he said was, Father, forgive them. He was right. They were wrong. And he... He had the power to judge Jesus. He saw their hearts and he had the power to determine where they spend eternity and instead he chose mercy. In Acts 7, Stephen did the same thing. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, as he was being stoned, do not hold this sin against them. Church, we have no enemies. We have no enemies. Those who are staunchly opposed to the gospel, hurling insults at us because of what we believe, trying to take away our rights, they're the ones we're called to serve. So what is it? What stirs up your judgment of other people? What makes you want to see someone punished for what they do? I think I'd like to point out one thing that I think has the biggest impact on why we judge in a way that we shouldn't. <clears throat> we simply forget that at one point we were also on trial and we were undeservedly found not guilty. Not guilty. When all the evidence was stacked against us, Jesus stood in the middle and declared us not guilty. So the question here today is, are you satisfied with God's judgment of you? He has declared you not guilty. Are you satisfied with that? Because when we develop a habit of working for our salvation, instead of receiving it as a gift, we start holding other people to that same standard. That's what we do. If, you, if we lose our focus of the gospel being a principle of mercy and grace and forgiveness, and we start trying to attain it through our works, through the little things that we do, trying to earn God's favor, trying to earn righteousness, trying to earn grace. We look at other people and say, what have you done to earn it? That's what we do. We hold other people to that same standard. Let's turn to John 9. And we'll start at verse 35. The summary of this chapter is um, 
Jesus heals a blind man on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are upset that this is happening on the Sabbath, and they're, they're also in disbelief that this man was actually blind. They end up ridiculing the healed man, <clears throat> and then Jesus revisits the man after he gets thrown out of the temple, and this is where we pick up in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? They man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have seen him now. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, okay, and those who see will become blind. I'm like, wait, hold on, Jesus. <laughs> What's going on here? I'm cool with the first part, right? I won't, yes, make the blind see. But the, those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this, and they asked, what, are we blind too? So they kind of understood what he was getting at. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is a conversation not about physical blindness, but about spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. We know that the Pharisees were listening to this statement because they immediately responded. So it's safe to say that Jesus was speaking to them. They were the Jewish religious leaders of the day and they were known for their self-righteousness and their high view of the law. They were, in fact, unrighteous in their judgments. They believed they could properly and accurately judge a man. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you think you can see clearly, you will become blind. And not only that, but you will be guilty of your sins. He says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of your sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Listen, church, withholding your unrighteous judgment of other people is not an option. What Jesus is saying here is that if you enact your own judgment on other people, then you are at odds with God's merciful judgment on you. Let me say that again. When you enact your judgment on other people, you are at odds with God's merciful judgment on you. He has mercilessly, mercilessly judged us. We've been given favor and mercy beyond belief. And we have to ask that question of ourselves. Are we satisfied with God's judgment of us? You can't earn it. You can't work harder for it. You don't deserve it to begin with. Let's not try to work for our salvation because when we do that, we start holding other people to that same standard. So today and forever, church, let's rest in the gospel. Let's make a point to bless those who curse us. Let's make a point to bless those who we don't agree with. Let's make a point to bless those who are different than us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel that sets us free, that's a law of liberty, that you freed us uh, from punishment. You freed us from, 
from an eternity separated from you, Lord, that we can spend um, eternity with you. Lord, that we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, Lord. I pray that that just rings true in our hearts today, um, that we would flee from any mentality of having to work harder for your mercy, that we would rest in the gospel today, Lord, that we would look, that we would go, from, go out from here today, that we would look around and we would see each person as an opportunity for the gospel to be preached. Lord, that we wouldn't be afraid of enacting the gospel, that we would withhold our judgments of other people and instead we would speak love, we would speak the gospel to them, that they too can come to know you. And that in our, in our acts of service, in our acts of respect and honor and love, Lord, that we would see the gospel revive this place. That the gospel would revive this church. That the gospel would re revive this nation. That love would reign supreme. That mercy would triumph over judgment. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.